1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. Everywhere we go, people want to know
2: now we are. Hello, everyone. My name is Rebecca Kelly, and you're listening to the Everywhere We Go podcast. This week, I sit down with Louise Monahan. Louise's story left me speechless on countless occasions. A childhood plighted by sexual abuse, the horrific death of her mother, her only confidant and best friend. A tragedy that suffocated her in the confinements of a small town which led to her escape to Cyprus for a new life and a new Louise. It's here in these new surroundings that she meets Mustafa. She falls hard and fast. A relationship from the beginning built on lies and deceit which quickly turns into violence and develops into an unspeakable chain of events. These events she would never have got through without the pure love for her child. Her story is one of bravery, resilience, strength and endurance. A story of a mother who is willing to protect her child with the price of her own life. A story of a bond between two sisters that I could only ever imagine. A surreal story that needs to be heard Be believed everywhere we go, people want to know who we are and where we come from. So, who are you and where do you come from? My name is Louise Monaghan, I'm from Swords. Louise, thanks for sitting down with me today.
3: You're welcome.
2: So, Louise, take me back to the death of your mother um, and your need to leave Ireland for Cyprus. Yeah, so basically, I was newly married,
4: um, and it was the year 2000. Uh, it was a very eventful year. Um previous to to my mom's death, uh, my nephew Josh had been born with a very serious kidney disease, polycystic kidneys. Um, and he was five that year, two thousand, and he had been listed for a kidney transplant. Um, and it was touch and go. We had the transplant in July, and myself, me, and mom, my sister sat in the waiting room. Uh, for a couple of days, it was touch and go. He was he went through some very bad phases. Um, and um, I remember at one stage, my man basically prayed to God and said, please, um, if it comes to it, please take me, don't take a five-year-old boy. Um, he eventually pulled through it. So um, to celebrate Josh's new health, newfound health, um, I brought my sister Mandy to New York uh, and then 9-11 happened. <laughs> So it was a very eventful year. And um, and then in that December, then my mum was killed. Were you caught up in nine eleven? Uh, yes, we were staying in Yonkers with a very good childhood friend of mine called Shirley. Um, we'd had a fabulous few days. Uh, I remember the day prior to nine eleven, um, myself, my sister Mandy and Shirley had gone down. We had the most fantastic day. We went to Battery Park. It was a beautiful summer's day, blue skies. Uh, and I remember Shirley saying to me that the Twin Towers were the tallest building buildings in New York. And to see the top of them, you'd have to lay down. Mm. So the three of us laid down at Battery Park and looked up to the top. Um, and it was hard to imagine then that a couple of hours later that happened. It was, it was very scary. The morning of 9-11, um, we had been out the previous night. And um, basically, we were all hung over, obviously, that morning. Mm. My friend Shirley woke us up screaming and shouting, saying, we're under attack, we're under attack. Something's happening. So we all went downstairs and put on the telly and and looked at this devastation unfolding in front of us. Um, Scariest thing was looking out the windows and seeing the dust. and, And then the following days that pursued, we'd walk around the parks and you'd see all the the hundreds of missing and posters so it was devastating really sad but at the time my mum in Ireland knew we were there obviously mm. and people were saying to her where's your daughter's and typical Irish woman said oh don't worry it was her last night they would have been know. out um, drinking last night and I'm sure they hung over and in bed this morning God. she was absolutely correct she was right yeah she was so right tell me about your mom an amazing woman a uh, real Irish mammy Loved her, loved her two daughters, Mandy and I. She was a great, great wife as well. A uh, lovely, great, lovely homekeeper. Her house was always spotless. She loved baking. She made the most delicious apple tarts, scones, uh, great cook as well. And um, just loved her daughters, but particularly her and I had a fantastic relationship. We were very close. Mm. Um, and uh, this particular, so I was only married a couple of months and we basically, I was in a new home and we had holly trees in the garden at the time. And she'd asked me on the Saturday, could I bring some down? Because she wanted to make a wreath up for her parents' grave. They were from Nobber in County Mead. It's a little village just past Navan and um, so on the morning the 9th of December I awoke and I felt very uneasy and um, something was wrong and um, I was I talked back to her request for the holly and said oh uh, the holly no I gave it to her um, and I just went on to the day we went uh, to get a Christmas tree a shop for a Christmas tree and in the afternoon we were in some friend's house a house watching television and my phone rang um, and as soon as it rang I I instantly knew something was wrong and I went to pick it up and uh, in frustration dropped it I looked at it again. My sister recalled and I answered the phone and my sister said, uh, Louise, uh, mam it's been in a very serious accident and she's in, they going to Navon uh, General. So it was, uh, I I just dropped everything. We got my dad and um, we started driving down towards Navon. It was starting to get dark at that stage. It was mm. winter. So um, on the way down, I got a call from an unknown number and it turned out to be the sister on the ward. Mm-hmm. And she said, um, yeah, who is this? I said, Louise, May's eldest daughter. And she, I said, how's my mammy? Mm-hmm. And she said, come quickly, uh, your aunt needs comforting. So I knew instantaneously that my mum was gone. So I didn't see anything. I looked in the rearview mirror and seeing my sister in the back and she's looking at me frantically to, to get some sort of indication of what was happening and I I gave nothing away. But when Adrian, that was my ex-husband at the time, my husband at the time, pulled into the car park, I opened the door and ran. Never been to the hospital before. I opened the double doors, went through three or four sets of double doors. Knew where she was. I don't know how. And when I got to the last set, I knew she was behind them doors. Couldn't go any further. And I turned around and my aunt, who she'd been been with in the car, uh, said, I'm so sorry, Louise. I brought your mum out for the day and I'm not bringing her home. Um, So it was uh, obviously it was a very, very traumatic episode and um, it profoundly affected me for the remainder of the way. And they were basically going down. They had gone to the grave Mm -hmm. just to to lay the wreath. And there was a family of six that had perished in a car crash a few months earlier from Knobber. And it was it was a widely broadcast accident. Uh, There were a young family, father and some kids and a baby had been killed uh, by a milk truck. At a, at a crossroads yeah and uh, they had been they were buried in this big family plot the far side of the graveyard and my mom had pointed over my, my aunt never related the story yeah. that my uh, mom had pointed over at the grave and said my god what kind of christmas will that family have this year and they got into the car and they were leaving the graveyard up the road and for some unexplained reason the car left the road and went onto the grass verge Uh, It flipped in the air and it turned over and my mum was in the back uh, and the side, that side where she was sitting impacted a tree. So she would no chance. Now, they said that she, she, it was the horrible, what I found very hard to deal with after the accident was the fact that she was alive for a long time in the car. They couldn't cut her out and it took them about an hour and a half to get her out and to keep her stable that time. Um, and by all accounts, she died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. So, yeah, it was heartbreaking. So, um, yeah, so that was the 9th of December. So it was um, a very bleak Christmas that year. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was my best friend and uh, my confidant and the best mammy anyone could ask for. And I still miss her as much then, Christmas as much now as I do then, did then. Christmas, not never. To say. No, it never. And she was a real Christmas person. She loved putting up the Christmas tree and the decorations. She made puddings for the entire family. She'd, but she had like um, so many brothers and sisters and she made them all a pudding and then friends and neighbors. We'd make 13, 14 puddings every Christmas in one of those old ch- child uh, plastic baths. I've never heard of that. I've Have you heard. not? No, Oh no, no. I've never seen so much Guinness and yeah. breadcrumbs. Yeah, she'd buy absolutely like a storehouse stuff yeah. and uh, currants and we all used to be self-managing her with all muck in and as a child you'd love them. Their memories are great, you know, yeah. getting your hands all sticky Yeah. and she said, oh, "Okay, to dig in and then you put the Guinness in, you'd be all mixing it up and she'd buy any puddings then for a week after. Yeah. So you have great memories. Oh yeah, fantastic. Most of hold definitely. on to them. Yeah, I certainly will. How old was your mum, Louise? 53. 53. Yeah. Very young woman. Yeah. It's, just, it's strange now because I'm 45, that so I'm getting closer to it. So, you know, it, ma- it makes a question around mortality, doesn't it? It does. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then how old were you at the time? 25. Newly married. Newly married. Yes. And then you decided then to go after that, to go
4: on a holiday, was it? Yeah. So basically I wasn't happily married. I I'd always relate the story that uh, Adrian and I were great friends. I'd met him when I was 30, I was 15. And um, there was a, a history going back. So basically I was quite vulnerable. Um, and the reason why I miss my mom so much was because I had, I was a victim of sexual abuse, uh, childhood sexual abuse uh, by my uncle. Um, It had continued for a a number of years. It it was very traumatic. I suffered a lot of nightmares. I had trouble sleeping. Um, My mom had installed a proper nightlight for me, so I'd sleep. I spent endless nights asleep in the, you know, the the door, the cubby of the door on the floor. I used to get out. We had bunk beds. My sister and I, I was in the top bunk, and I was absolutely convinced that he was lurking in the cupboard (sighs) behind the bed. So I'd often after a nightmare or I think he was there, I up and I'd sleep in the, in the well off the door of my parents' room on the floor. God. So many nights I did that, but nobody knew what was wrong with me. I was very introverted. I remember my uncle, my late uncle, and my dad's brother saying to me one time that, you know, as an adult, you speak to them and he said, Louise, yeah. you're always a very strange child. You know, you're, you're very introverted. You're the one that sat in the corner with a book and we really didn't say much. And he said, "And when it came out, what happened, it all made so much sense. You know, yeah. So eventually I think I was 12, Rebecca. Yeah. uh, when one incident happened, a very serious incident, and I really was convinced that he was going to kill me or I was in serious danger. And I got the courage up to tell my mom and it stopped. So he never, the police were never involved. Mm. It was never mentioned again. But all I do remember was it stopped. It never happened again. So my mother never actually told me what she did. Yeah. But I assume she spoke to him or something was, she did something. Is he still alive? Yes. Is he? Yeah. So when my mother was killed, she was the only person that I'd shared a secret with at the time up until that time. So I'd lost sort of that sort of support network as well, you know, but yeah. like she was the one person I'd go and speak to about it. Or she understood why I did something or acted out, you know, yeah, she understood why. So I met my, my ex-husband at 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, introverted quiet um, and didn't really know myself mm-hmm. now he was a great guy we were great friends um, and you go with the course and you know when we decided to get married and uh, we had built a house at the back of the airport on his family land I um, and I remember about four or five weeks before the wedding where the big wedding had been organized in Carver Castle the big key function, cars. I had got a spectacular, expensive wedding dress. And um, my parents had paid for a lot of it as well. And I went into my mother in, in the sitting, in the living room one night and said, Ma'am, listen, I'm really having second thoughts about this marriage. And um, I love Adrian, but I'm not in love with him. Mm-hmm. And she turned around and she said, Louise, I love you dearly. Uh, you are not coming, pulling out of this wedding now and making sure show of this family.
2: Yeah.
4: Um, and that was the way it was. Yeah. So I married him. Um, but as soon then, my mom died so, so soon afterwards, you know, um, that it's, it, the mar- marriage was fragile enough up until that point. So her death sort of cemented it at the end of it, really. And how did Adrian feel? Was he in the he same? He found same it same as very as difficult. He knew how close my mom and I were. Yeah. So he found it very difficult to, to sort of get me, you know, he didn't yeah. know how to comfort me. Mm-hmm. He didn't understand. He didn't think he, anything he would do would be enough. Mm-hmm. You know, we hadn't completely finished the house. So he sort of got stuck into finalizing or finishing the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but I moved back into the family home because my dad then was alone and um, and my sister had Josh. Mm-hmm. So to help them out. Um, and I just became completely disillusioned. I, I just couldn't. I was getting, I was very depressed. I had been di- diagnosed with clinical depression and um, suicidal thoughts, even at some points. And I uh, just felt I just had to, to get away or I was gone. I wouldn't have made it. Um, so I had gone on a holiday mm-hmm. um, the following March after mam's death. And uh, basically it was a week's holiday to Cyprus uh, with my dad, my sister Mandy and my nephew Josh. And we had the most amazing week. And um, I had moved jobs. I had moved to Abbey Travel in Sutton mm-hmm. from Swords Travel because it was just too familiar being working in a town that I came mm-hmm. from and everyone knew about Mam's death and everything else. Mm-hmm. And um, the May came around and I just decided that I was going to go away for a sort of sabbatical, mm-hmm. uh, a three or four month break. Uh, Abbey Travel were fantastic. They were completely understanding. Um, And said, take as much time as you need. It's a good idea. You know, they probably could sense or see that I wasn't myself. I was Mm -hmm. depressed. And strangely enough, one of the juniors who had been there a couple of months said, I'm going to go with you. Jenny, she was fabulous. And uh, we packed up and went One, one day in early May. The accommodation, it was small, intimate. It was a hub for all the expats. So we we're only there a couple of days and we would made numerous friends, Welsh, Scottish, English, people from London. Um, and it was basically, it was just, it was a great place to be. Small, mm-hmm. lovely pool, did a nice bar, there, restaurant and the most amazing sunset. It was unbelievable. The view. It's totally different from the pool area. Yeah, it was just complete. It was exactly what I needed. Yeah. That getaway, you know. And then what, what happened then? So basically I had no, I, I had intended coming back. But I had met these uh, Welsh people, uh, Sally and Rachel, from the Valleys in Wales, Um, extraordinary family, uh, clairvoyance. Great characters. Um, Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And uh, Rachel, both of them actually were stylists, very good stylists, hairdressers. Mm -hmm. Um, And Rachel at the time was working in various hotels in Paphos cutting hair. So we'd, we'd, not yourself, sitting around the pool. We sort of, uh, because we got this idea then to open this business, Mm -hmm. a hair salon, because there was a huge market there for expats. There was no one there that cut European hair, Cypriot hair be very different. No one could do a, a blonde color or whatever. Yeah. So we decided then to rent this, this property um, and we called it Freckles. Everything was uh, pink, translucent pink. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very enterprising business because uh, it had a large space at the back. Mm-hmm. So I basically um, sublet, I made different partitions and I made it into four different rooms and I sublet those rooms. So in one, a beautician rented one off me masseuse another. There was a tattoo artist upstairs. He was a character Tony from London, Um, and then there was a nail nail bar in the corner. And I had then a beautician who did lashes and and tanning and all that as well. So I mean, the rent the rent I made on on the rooms alone covered my rent doubles. You know, so before I even cut a hair or did a colour, I was making double the rent.
2: So you'd gone from this you know, absolute tragedy um, or like introvert sitting behind a desk in a travel agency to Cyprus, sun sea, and your personality must have changed. Did the guys know your history? Did they, were they aware? Or? Yes, I confided in,
4: in Rachel. I made so many good friends. I confided in them, you know, about the breakup of my marriage, my mom's death, the breakup of my marriage, the abuse. They were so supportive. But I think in that environment, because they don't know your history or your family, they don't judge you. They take you for who you are. Mm. They knew me before they knew all this. Yeah. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And we formed a brilliant friendship and great bonds. And they still exist to this day. We're all still great friends, you know. But it was, it, it, I think it's what I need. It's it's, yeah. it's the reason I survived. It's because I changed myself. This environment done me good. It boosted my confidence, my morale. I I was succeeding. I used my own initiative. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, I was suddenly, I was suddenly that little girl. I I wasn't in the corner anymore. I was up and, and doing it for myself. And people listened to me. I was going to business meetings and I was saving a lot of money and I bought a nice car. I just felt accomplished. Yeah. You know, and I hadn't felt that, I suppose, up until that point and amazing nights out oh yeah absolutely so I mean we did a thing called the tooth fairy so that was a very enterprising initiative as well yeah. so the tooth fairy we don't know what that is it was a little diamante or a star you have a little diamante or a gold star and it's basically glued onto your tooth
2: <laughs> I know it well <laughs> and these
4: so all these tourists I mean on a Friday and Saturday morning they'd be queuing 20 30 down the road for these tooth fairies and I was doing them for 10 Cypriot pounds a pop yeah but it was so funny we go out at, to, down to Bar Street and Paphos at night and it's everyone in the nightclub you know the dark that they, they'd open their mouth, and everyone was gleam oh. <laughs> everyone was gleaming and glittering with the two fairies My, I was responsible you know Jesus. but it was very funny yeah
2: so you're living the life you're living the dream having you know you're really comfortable feeling accompli- accomplished and then what happened next? Yeah. So
4: basically I was, um, we decided, Adrian and I decided that our marriage wasn't going to continue. He'd met somebody else mm-hmm. at that stage as well. And um, so we had um, organized separation um, and we, I was living the life in Cyprus so to stay. The business going very well. And uh, one night on a, one of our usual nights down on Saturday evening in Bar Street, um, we had a few drinks, went to a club and I met this man called Mustafa. And when was that? What time of year was that that you met him? That would have been in the October. Okay. So if I was there from the May. Okay. And um, so basically, we hit it off. He he came across well initially. My my first sort of feelings were he's very attractive tall dark handsome and um, he seemed very He came across very kind you know when he spoke he approached me in the club at the bar mm. he spoke very kindly he seemed very you know and um, he was listening to everything i said understanding we left he said he dropped me home that night and um, i understood that he was he spoke he actually wasn't as that night i met him he okay. actually introduced himself as lagas which is a, a cypriot name mm-hmm. so i assumed him to be cypriot yeah he was syrian he was Syrian. He was okay. Syrian Muslim. Um, anyway, a relationship formed fairly quickly. Uh, my sister just happened to be coming over after being home for a couple of weeks. The next day, I was going to collect her, um, and I remember when I think back, I suppose the early warning signs were there. Uh, I remember we went out that following night, and I told him I met someone the previous evening, mm-hmm. and we went into this bar called Chloe's on uh, in Coral Bay. And Paphos just going to have something to eat. I looked over and he was standing behind a pillar looking at me. And I sort of, I remember being taken back, but I put it down to a coincidence. You know, there's no way he would have followed me here or he'd have no way of knowing I was there. Um, but as the relationship went on, um, it transpired that this happened more and more. Okay. You know, if I was out for uh, for with the girls after a work two, he would turn up without being invited. So I'd never told him where I was going. So the early signs were definitely there, you know, and in the early stages as well. We moved on very quickly. Um, and was he stalking you like in the initial stages? He, he must have been. I yeah. mean, in hindsight, I know it's a very, a very strong word, yeah. but most definitely because I wasn't telling him I was going to these venues.
2: Yeah. He was just turning up. So he must have been following me. And do you think then the night nightly do I think that was, you That's know. rude. Yeah. No, I think that was definitely... Coincidence. Definitely just a coincidence. Just met. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of our,
4: our eyes sort of met. I was on the dance floor and he came over. I think he very quickly, for some reason, just sort of latched on. And his I most most certainly in the initial stage of the relationship, he was certainly the more keen. I remember in the early few weeks and months saying to him, I haven't got time. No, I'm mm. not doing that this, this night. And it must have really frustrated him, yeah. you know, but that changed very quickly. Um I had, we had rented this and I initially had rented this place with Jenny. Um it was a village called Embe outside Paphos, And he started staying there. And then we rented our own place then near the business uh, down on the tomb of the King's Road. It's just up from the, the harbour. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I moved in with him, things changed very quickly. Really? He started taking my car all the time. Um, he started I slowly tell me, listen, that top is not just really suitable. You can see your shoulders. This would be nicer on you. He was saying it started in subtle ways, but yeah. it got more and more, you know, uh, forceful over time. You know, so the early signs were definitely there. At what stage did it start to get violent? I don't really actually remember the first time he struck me, to believe it or not. I, I think I, one night, I do remember, it was quite early on. So it would have been around maybe late November. Okay. We were living together. And he took it up that I had flirted with a friend of his, well, actually his cousin. And I denied it. And I remember we went back to the apartment and he, without any warning, so struck me in the face. And I couldn't believe it, you know, and he put it down to it was an accident. Sorry, I wasn't thinking it was very impulsive of me. I apologize. And then I started from there. But I remember one instance, um, my sister was coming over. It must have been after Christmas, maybe January, February. And she was coming over. And the the previous night, I was wearing a lemon top. I never forget it. It was out of the shoulder, shoulder Ooh. cut out, lemon top. And I was going out on a work do again. And he said, you're not going out like that. It's completely inappropriate. And as I went to walk past him, he grabbed me by the top and ripped it off me. And I remember running and I hit under this big duvet and he had, I heard a leather belt being slapped and he, I was under the duvet and he kept hitting and hitting and hitting. I could hear slapping of the belt. I was under the duvet and it eventually stopped. And when he left the room and I pulled the duvet back, I was covered in welts, but I had a really big one. The whole length of the belt was evident uh, from my hip bone all the way down my leg. And you could see the metal buckle. Mark halfway down on my tie. And what was going through your head under that duvet? Uh terror, basically. Is he going to kill me? You know, is he is he actually going to kill me? But um what happened after that was he calmly came into the room seeing the big welt on my leg in particular and told me to get dressed. And I never actually fully got an explanation as to why he did this, but he told me to go out to the car. And we drove towards Corra Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an area, it's a beach area that has cliffs in a place called Paya. And he, it was dark, and he kept driving, and he went up and up this this big mountain. Sorry, it wasn't a mountain; it was probably hills. But going back, it seemed very steep. And nothing was said in the car. It was complete silence. Uh, and I remember it was it was definitely winter because I remember it was windy and it was cold yeah. and it was a bit of rain. And he kept driving and he stopped at the top of this sort of cliff. And when the door opened, I could hear boards. you know, seagulls. And I yeah. knew it was a pie and yeah. the wind was. And I said, what's going on here? And he took me by the hand. They walked over to the Cliff Edge and he said, are you happy now? And I felt it was like, is he going to throw me over? And looking back, I think it was his way of just sort of controlling me. You yeah. know, this is what I, I am capable of without saying anything. And then he just said, you happy now? And he looked over the, the cliff edge and sort of got my hand and then brought it back to the car and brought me home. So the next morning, Sally, my pal, we meant we had arranged to meet, meet on the beach. Mandy was coming in later that day. Mm -hmm. And um, we sat on the beach and she was saying, you're not happy, you're not yourself. You become very interested. This was Rachel's mom, was it? Sally, Rachel's mom. Yes. She was my mammy too, I called her. I still Mm -hmm. call her mammy too. Mm -hmm. And she said, you're not yourself. There's something going on. And I had forgotten myself for a second and stood up off the sun chair and my my skirt fell over and she see the big welt on my leg and she burst into tears and she said nothing. And we just hugged. And to Louisa, I have to get away from him. He's so dangerous. So I remember, you know, Mandy came over and I said, I go back. Mm-hmm. And I think I had it in my head, Rebecca, even though I had a business there and it was doing very, very well, I had it in my head that maybe I'll go back and see if it works out and I'll try and make a go of it in Ireland. Mm. And I went back and he kept ringing me and, and then the pull of of my friends and the business and my life, because I always say this to people, other than the my relationship with Mustafa, every other aspect of my life in Cyprus would be perfect. It was yeah. picture perfect. It was my, the business was doing well, like great friends. I felt inner peace when I was there. I love swimming on the sea every day. You know, I, I, I got a lot of peace and I found a lot of, you know, I just found hope there. I just felt reassured. I felt so good about everything else. And the only bad aspect was it, of it was my relationship with Miss So when you came back to Ireland. Yeah. And, and Rachel wasn't coping with the business. She was very busy and I would have been the manager there. So I was taking all the appointments, taking the rents, you know, organizing everything. So she really felt she couldn't cope. So I had that pressure on me as well, to be fair. Those then those preceding weeks, then I um, am fell pregnant, rang him and he said, you have to come back straight away. You need to be here. I need to look after you. Went back. Yeah. Worst decision ever, because when I went back and pregnant, it became really bad. Did it? It became really bad. And for some reason, he seemed to be jealous of my pregnancy. I, I was concentrating on myself, trying to eat well. Um, I had cravings for fruit, which was brilliant. And he'd bring me baskets of fruit, but he, he felt, I, I don't know, it was like he resented right the baby before she was mm-hmm. even born you know and um, there was one very bad incident where I remember I was I came back to Ireland when I was about six and a half months seven months pregnant so I would have been about six and a half months and we were in the apartment and I remember I had gone and got some money out um of the bank I must have been going to buy something maybe baby clothes something yeah. from or the child and I had the money laid out in the bed and he came in and I was in the shower and I heard him muttering and he wasn't happy. And I came out and he said, what's that money for? And I said, oh, I'm going to buy a buggy. I'm going to buy and disinfuriated him. Anyway, a row ensued and he ended up. Now, I remember I was pregnant and I was standing beside the bed. And I remember he punched me square in the face and I fell back onto the bed. And I don't remember. I remember coming around, I don't know how long it was, yeah. and his cousin was there. And they had me in the shower and they were pouring water over my head <gasps> to, to bring me around. Um, and I remember they carried me out then into the bed and uh, Ali, who was his cousin at the time, yeah. was given out to him saying, how could you do this? You, you're, you're. And I remember I wasn't fully conscious and they were having a conversation about me being dead. You're after killing her. What are we going to do now? And they, they brought me out into the, into the bed and laying me down and I came around and Ali was like in Arabic, alhamdulillah, you know, thank God she's yeah. okay. And he spoke to me and he said, this can't happen again. He never even said sorry then. He never said sorry. So I went back and um, there's a kidney. Josh, my, my nephew has a kidney disease. Mm. So I had to have proper tests um, on the baby. Who i had been told earlier when I was three, four months pregnant by a Cypriot doctor, I was having a boy. Okay. So I went back to, and especially boys, this particular kidney ailment runs in, is more common in boys, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. So I came back and I had an appointment booked in St. Michael's of Dunleary. They specialise in this. And um, was he okay with you going home? No, no. Not at all. So I came back and went and had the scan. And I was in there. I remember there's two lovely Irish nurses and they were talking to me and I said, Yeah, and he I'm having a baby boy. And they were like, Oh no, you're not. You're expecting a girl. And I was so, so happy. I remember thinking, I knew it was you, May. I knew it was always you. Be and ma'am. she was May from that moment, yeah. And named her after me, ma'am. And I left St. Michael's ecstatic, and I went straight to town and I bought loads of baby clothes, <laughs> pinks and yellows and no it was thing. fantastic. Um, and I decided then to stay in Ireland and have May in Hollow Street. I felt it was just after the assault before I came. I I, I left. I decided it was the best thing to do. So I had May um, in Ireland and Hollow Street. Yeah,
2: and how was he when when you like, we did you have fear telling him you were staying or you were in Ireland, you didn't care that he was there, like he was, you were away from him? Yeah. Uh, so he, so the business
4: is still going uh, back in Cyprus and he was driving around in my car and he was living in the apartment. And um, so I just felt, well, at least if I'm here, he can't hurt me physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wouldn't, uh, because uh, he was, on un- he was angry. I was in Ireland. So he wouldn't answer his phone for days and ends, you know. But listen, at the end of the day, I, I decided to focus on me and, and the baby and get through that. Yeah. So she was only born a couple of weeks and I decided to go back. There was something uh, something to do with the business and see him for the weekend. Perhaps maybe in hindsight, I wanted to see Sussum out before I brought the baby back to that environment as well. Mm-hmm. So I left May with Mandy and I um, got the flight over on the tourists. say intend to come back on Saturday. And um, he was still in the apartment, but it, it turned out that he'd been seeing somebody the whole time I was back in Ireland and uh, giving birth. He'd been seeing this much older Cypriot lady. Um, How old was he? Because he sounds like he was old and domineering No, Yeah, no, he was younger than me. So at the time I had May, I was 30 and mm-hmm. he was two years younger. So he's 28 at the time. But uh, the two days, now I'd had a C-section as well. And I was still sore from that. Went over uh, for the two nights. It transpired. His phone kept ringing and ringing. And uh, I answered it so I could speak a little Greek. And this Cypriot lady said, that's my, my boyfriend. I've been seeing him for months. Uh, I know who you are. He doesn't love you and all. You know, oh he's just saying with you because you're, you're, you have his baby. And she was a mother with seven children. It was a woman. He used to be a laborer, and it was one of the contracts he had. It was a woman who owned the house, and they were doing a set of steps in the back for, and he started an affair and a sexual affair that way. We fell out over this this woman who he'd been seeing. And um, I had just had a C section four weeks earlier, um, and he forced me to have sex that night. Okay. Yeah, uh, against against my will. And um, we were saying actually, so I was staying you. with yeah, basically, I was staying with a friend, Rachel. I was staying in her house. Yeah. And, um, I, we had dinner and he came around, yeah, and forced himself onto me. And I'd said to him, listen, I'm not having a C-section or not. No, didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I came back anyway, came back to, to Ireland and, um, I don't know. I just decided, listen, at the end of the day, May's May's father. And even if we're not together, she'll have him in her life. He can see her, you know, he can, he can be involved in her upbringing uh, my life was there, my business, my friends, I had money in the bank, Rebecca. I just felt that Cyprus offered me so much more than Ireland. You know, I, I found peace there. I loved swimming in the sea. I wanted me to experience that. Mm. Uh, I made the ultimate decision to go back, you know. So went back and um, it transpired that Masafa had been living there then illegally. Um, we're only back a couple of weeks. yeah. And um, CIA basically had a warrant out for his arrest. So he gave himself up. And had persuaded May and I to go with him uh, to Syria. Um, and then he said, that if that happened, then he would have got a visa to go back to Cyprus. No problem if I married him or whatever else. Went back to, to Syria and it, it transpired uh, that um, he, we we were saying the big city. Um, and he was saying his little village in naira which is about an hour away. We were saying a mm. city called, uh, it's called Idlib. It's up the north. Like? Huge big city, very, very historic. It was amazing. I loved it. You know, um, we went, we went to stayed in Idlib and we stayed in Aleppo. Now Aleppo is a big, huge historical city, castle, drawbridge there, real cosmopolitan. Mm. I had coffee shops and cafes, all loads of tourists, French, Germans, British there. So this is pre-war? Pre-war. Mm. Yes. This would have been 2005, 2006, yeah. you know, and um, the war started in 2011. So, um, yeah, it was fantastic. I got a lovely vibe in it, but he left me alone for many nights on end. And um, what I haven't said in this is that it transpired when I was pregnant with May. Uh, rumors had been going around that Masafa had been already married in Syria. Um, a Lebanese friend of mine told me I, I was disbelief. Um, I chose not to believe him, but it stuck uh, and I directly asked Masafa one night, he denied us. And then a couple of nights later he approached me and said, by the way, I'm very sorry, but I am actually married. It transpired that he had married his first, it was an arranged marriage, Rebecca, mm. to his first cousin, um, which would be common practice in mm. Islamic faith. And they had married and they'd had a daughter and then she was pregnant again, same time as me with their son. So she had basically I was pregnant at the time and he had his wife and Siri, he was pregnant at the same time.
2: And Louise, just so just put it like some context, like. For anyone who's listening to this now and they're like, ah, Jesus Christ, could she not? Why did she not get away from him? Like, because everyone does say that with with domestic abuse and domestic violence. Yeah. Yeah. Like the big thing is people "Ah, walk away from him, get away from him. Jesus, she's stupid. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's the attitude. Yes. yes, Yeah. (laughs) It's, I think, I, I always
4: say to people in hindsight, when I look back, I was very vulnerable. Now, you can wrap it up how you want. I, I was very seriously sexually abused as a child. You carry that with you, Rebecca. That mm. really does knock your confidence. You feel you're not worth it. Mm. So you're always trying to be somebody you're not. Mm. And you try harder. You want to be successful. You don't want to fail because it's always then you always believe it's your fault. So I really believe that he I, and I think certain men see this wanting in in these women mm. like myself you know, I was very, ultimately, I I must have, you must have seen a weakness, you know, a want.
2: Yeah.
4: Uh, I was very vulnerable. And you don't, it does sort of make your thinking different. You think different. You think of yourself as a different person. You don't feel you value. You don't value who you are. You want, you want to, to achieve something and you want to be successful at any cost. I want your, my relationship. relationship. I want mm. the father of my child to be in my daughter's life mm. or it was a fail again, you know. Get that. Yeah.
2: You're in the hotel in Syria and he's gone missing. You know that the wife is Yes. Yeah. So basically when we went, we were in um, Aleppo,
4: actually. He'd been gone missing a couple of days. Now, I was aware that he had the wife and two children. And I remember I hadn't seen him in three days. So I was left in this big city. Now it was a nice hotel. Um, and I went out. I ventured out once or twice with me and the buggy, etc. And was knocking on the door and he came to the door with his wife and two children. <gasps> So I didn't, I didn't, uh, yeah, I just briefly glimpsed them and that yeah. was it. And he came in and I said, listen, I have to go back. That's my wife and she, are. can you meet them? I said, no, definitely not. I'm oh not, my God. no, I'm not interested in that. So I, I knew it wasn't, it, it was just not going to work. So, um, we went to Dubai his brother lived in Dubai and um, he'd left me a few more days, went back, came back and we said, if we go to Dubai and uh, we'll try and make a go of it there, yeah. we could get married there. I can get fees. My his two brothers actually in Dubai and are both airline pilots. Uh, I went to Dubai and his brother, who he had been very close to when they were younger, he'd left mm. now Syria to go to Cyprus at a very early age. He was right. only 12 or 13. And um, his brother talked to one side after two nights and said, listen, Louise, uh, my brother, I love him. He's my brother, but he's a very strange man. He's always had very strange ways, um, and I'm telling you now, uh, as because you are my my niece's mother, and because I respect you as a person, leave him, get away from him. I'll help you. I'll get you on a flight. And he did, and he booked me a flight back to Ireland uh, a couple of hours later, uh, without even a staff of knowing, without knowing
2: you went, without him knowing. So like it, effectively, his brother betrayed him to help me, and so. When you just mentioned that that he was a very strange child, were you relating to that because you were seen as a very strange child? Perhaps, yeah, perhaps, yeah. I've seen maybe
4: uh, his cousin said that to me when I met him in the initial stages. His cousin had said to me at one stage, uh, "Masafa is strange. Um, he has no loyalties. You know, he'll never. He, he he's my he's my cousin, but I've, I don't really know him. Nobody really knows him. He never actually gives anything away. He never opens up." Um, and his cousin said that to me years, years earlier. Wow. So there was a pattern, you know? Yeah. And then, so you're left to buy and you've come back to Ireland Yes. You? And I was going to make a go of it in Ireland. The business is still going yeah. uh, in Cyprus and it was going very well. It was still making money. I was living on that while I was living back in Ireland. And, um, I had finalized uh, my divorce and I had the money wise financially I was more independent and uh, basically I decided listen it's it's hit or miss it's it's either I do it at all now or nothing and I decided that uh, apart from the relationship with Mustafa everything else in Cyprus was fantastic and I missed my life there and I decided to buy a property there we, we packed up and went went to live there and I was truly over Mustafa, I had I accept the fact that May wouldn't have her father. I was sad about this because he was deported at the time. He was gone, yeah, yeah. definitely in Dubai. He, yeah, yeah. Gone. And yeah. As far as I was concerned, he never get back to Cyprus. He'd been deported. I had basically accepted everything, sad about it. But I said, this amazed you and I, kid, and we're going to make a go of this and it'll be happy and, you know, we'll do it. And it was great. And we went to the beach every day. So she basically did everything with me that I did before. You know, yeah, it yeah, was just yeah. slapped me back, or to me chest. Mm. And um, we great army all, all friends were very helpful i bring her to the salon every day and it was just great. And um, yeah, and then one day in my new house with this new idyllic life, I got a phone call off an unknown number and it was Massafa to say that he was back in Cyprus and he wants to see his daughter. He had every right to see her, that she was his. And I never really questioned how he got back. i dread to think, you know, yeah. it must be an assumed name, Rebecca, or, yeah. or a new passport. Um, so the next couple of months were horrific. He basically terrorized me Phone calls, he'd drive down, he found out where I lived. He'd follow me in the car and um, threatening me, threatening my friends that I was his, his mother of his child. And he was denying. I was denying him his, his rights to the baby. And after months and months of wearing me down and frightening all my friends and I couldn't run the business, Rebecca, he was mm. coming to the business and it was just a nightmare. I sold my share of the business to oh, my friend. You? Yeah. And um, he had arranged an apartment in Limassol, and came down. I packed all my things together and went to live in an apartment in Limassol. With him? With him and May.
2: But Rachel and Sally screaming
4: at you. I spoke about everything. And ultimately, I think Rachel said to me, listen, Louise, you obviously love this guy. And he's May's dad will support you. They were all threatened so many times. I mm. mean, he, he wasn't just, he was, he was dangerous, you know, yeah. and they, they went above and beyond. Yeah. I couldn't ask any more of them. You know, I really couldn't. I, that was a big factor as well, Rebecca. I felt I needed to take him away from them as well. I you needed to make to a new them. start to protect them. I needed to, this was my responsibility. I brought this on me and them. And I need to own it. May settled and um, we put her in a fantastic nursery, private nursery. Um, and it was going well again for the first couple of months. And then the abuse started again and uh, the possessiveness the whole lot. So um, after months of, I, I couldn't put May through anymore. Um, he was, was he abusive towards May? Did he ever put his uh, hands on May? Yeah, he, he'd, he'd slap her sort of not now. He didn't punch her or, you yeah. know, like a child slap, he'd slap her, slap yeah. her on the leg, slap her on the hand. It was more his tone of voice that scared her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he used her to manipulate me. Mm-hmm. So if he wasn't happy, he wasn't getting what he wanted. And uh, maybe in bed and he'd go down and wake her up and come down, bring her down and say, now, you know what I mean? Tell me no what you told me. You know, he used her sort of as an emotional crutch all the, crutch all the time. So uh, I just made a decision. No, that's it. Now he's, I, I've given him a chance. It's and not worked out and okay. um, we don't need him. I have a great job. I'm financially independent. He, and um, he was working one week and he wasn't working the next week. Okay. So he's become more and more dependent on me as well. And, and could I you said, see
2: if effect in affecting May? She had
4: basically, she had um, developed some habits. She was pulling her hair out. Um, it was a stress condition that um, if it's anxiety, that results in uh, pulling hair and I'd find balls of hair under a pillow And I could see she was getting more stressed. I said, absolutely no way. So I uh, initiated separation proceedings. And uh, with the support out of my friends, etc., And I had a brilliant solicitor, Romanian guy. But you didn't marry him because of his visit from yes. staying in Cyprus? Yes, yes, yes yeah. It was a very, the, the, not even mentioning them, it's the, not even yeah. worth mentioning. Yeah. Uh, after we moved to Limassol, we had a quick ceremony uh, in the town hall. Two friends of mine were witnesses, Nicola and her husband David, and we had scrambled eggs for breakfast afterwards. So it's not even in my mind yeah. to mention it, you know, yeah. but yes, we were officially married. And um, so I found a fantastic solicitor solicitor and um he initiated divorce proceedings and it was only finalized very quickly because his solicitor had forgot the date i got the wrong date and didn't show up yeah yes so um got my divorce the night of my divorce i was out celebrating in a restaurant with friends he arrived after finding out that um it had gone through that that day brought me, pulled me by the hair away from the table, out the door and put me in the car. I was screaming and shouting. I couldn't believe it's still happening, you know, and uh, brought me to a police station and said, no, make a report there. You can go and report me. He would do anything to get me out of a social environment where I was surrounded by anybody but him, you know, And so he, this went on. So May was still, obviously he was his, she, he was her father. Mm. So he went for access rights. He wanted joint custody Mm. a social service got involved and um, he transpired that he wasn't, he couldn't get it. So he had got two days access to May. Um, And um, it was the two days actually were Mondays and Wednesdays. Mm. And it was on one of those access days that um, he did what he did.
2: Yeah. With that now, we'll just take a break and then we'll come back in a couple of minutes. So Louise, you just said day before the break, he did what he did. So what yeah. did he do? Yeah. So basically it was seen like a normal
4: morning. It was basically a Wednesday morning and um, he had access to May. Mm-hmm. Uh, on previous access days, uh, May had refused to go with him yeah. because to be to be honest, she was not really used to spend time with him. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the better days when we were together as a couple, he never really did anything with May. He never spent time with her. He never took her off by himself, bought her shopping or brought her to the beach. It was always May and I or May and I and my friends or our friends. So in the initial access days, it was very difficult for her to go with him. She was quite scared of him, especially earlier on. And um, I had no choice. There was one occasion where May refused to go. She had a big tantrum crying. I wouldn't leave the house and the police came. He called the police and they came and said, listen, he has an access order. You have to it was, it was heartbreaking. So I found myself sort of bribing me, you know, listen, if you go with your dad, mm. uh, we'll get ice cream then when you come home or we'll have
2: a pool party tomorrow or, you know. Can you so, imagine the amount of women out there that is still doing, that's doing that now? Absolutely. Listen. To keep the peace yeah. or, you know, God. to not go to
4: jail themselves yeah. because they can actually, the police threaten to jail me. Listen, your child has to go with Mustafa or you can, you can you'll go to jail. That's the law. Wow. He has a court paper to say his access to his daughter. So, this particular morning, May was calm. She was looking forward to going with him. She was accepted. She was going with him. And I was doing my exercise. They came in and um, I'd packed a bag for May. Now, in hindsight, he'd walked around the house a few times and I didn't really put much to it, you know. There was, uh, I said, May was gone. I remember I offered him money. He never always had money and it wasn't for him. I said, listen, do you want 20 euro of May? wants an ice cream or whatever. And he said, no, I have money. I don't need money. And I remember he was walking down the drive, and I said to me, "Oh, I never brushed her hair." He said, "No, I have brushed in the car. It's all okay." And uh, she got into the car, and I remember before she got in, she looked over her shoulder at me and she smiled. And I remember feeling a little bit uneasy at that time. I said, "Oh no, Louise, it's just access, and you you worry when he takes her anyway, and she'd be okay, you know. He's her father; she's safe." So, was mother's instinct, yeah, you know? But because this house, uh, this house was my house. I had gotten this house uh, myself. Um, after separation and before the divorce so it was our haven but he had even intruded on this prior to to the access and prior to this morning I mean there was one instance where um, he had I was on on the veranda talked to my sister yeah and it was dark and I had I was on the phone looked down and there was my staff under the veranda on all fours and I said to my sister oh there he is he's he's actually below me on his hands and knees and I was speaking to him and he didn't look at me or acknowledge me. And he just went down the drive on his hands and knees crawling and then slowly grew up and got into his car and drove off like it was normal. Or another instance, my friend came around for coffee and said, Louise, the tree, I don't need to alarm you, but the tree outside your drive, the cigarette brands that Missafa smokes, there's absolutely loads of, of butts oh and sandwich all around the bottom of the tree. They must have been using that as a point to look into the house one particular terrifying morning was when it was it was winter and there was condensation on the window and my bed uh, was on the, the the top of my bed basically the window was behind it and i got up and looked back and you could see his full proper handprint uh, in the window where he'd obviously been at the window and looking at me lying in the bed so, I mean, even in this this new home that I made, my yeah. my home, a May's home, he was still intrusive and he'd still come
2: into it. And I think people will probably be going, how on earth did the police give him access? But I think people really realise that Cyprus is very different, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's
4: very much, I'd, the amount of times I'd gone to the police, the police station reporting him for assault. Um, I'd gone to friends' houses, he'd come and threaten them. They actually said, you know, they reported him, Or for terror. I know for harassment. Yeah. No. This lady married this man. She made her own bed. She's a child for him. She made her own bed. You can lie in it. The police attitude was, no, nothing we can do. Or go to the courts. Speak to your solicitor was the the answer I got a lot. So this morning, she went off in the car with him. I went to Olympic holidays working in the call center and... felt uneasy. I, I remember I was directly, I was sitting adjacent Jason, my colleague, Nicola, my friend, mm. went to ring his phone and his phone was off to my horror. And I instantly knew that she, that something was wrong. Something there was wrong. something wrong. Leapt up off my desk. Nicola said, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'll go with you. It's two of us. I said, I need to get to the beach. He told me he was going to. I got into the car, went to the beach. It was September. Um, she was meant to start big school the following day, Rebecca. Um, I had a uniform laid out. I had got her shoes, her bag packed, everything. Went to the beach. It was completely barren, nobody around. And I said, oh, my God, he's taken her. I, I remember I rang Mandy and I uttered the words, Mandy, she's, she's gone. He's taken her. And she knew what I was talking about. She was trying. Uh, prior to this, he had taken our passports and I had gone to the police and reported them stolen. The um, They advised me to also contact the embassy, the Irish embassy, yeah. which is Nicosia. And I had then done the correct procedure to cancel the passports through the embassy as well. And they acknowledged the same, they acknowledged that they had been canceled. And so Mandy was aware of this. Uh, May was also on what's called a stop list. Right. So a stop list, basically it's very common practice in Cyprus um, because there's a lot of mixed marriages, different nationalities. And basically it's a court order that uh, if either parent wants to remove the child from the country, need your other parents' consent yeah, and signature and has to be authorised yeah um by a solicitor or whatever. So this is all in place. So and Mandy was aware of this. So when I rang Mandy and I should probably heard it from my voice, I was distraught this Mandy, she's gone, he's taken her she oh she screamed and I honestly felt horror. I just knew in blind panic, I went, rang my friend Deirdre, rang my friends, I said look out for them Everyone drive around, try and find them. BMW silver, gave everyone the reg. Went straight to the police. Um, straight away, it was serious crime, up to CID. Um they issued an APB for his car. Um and I was absolutely struck distra- I kept trying his phone, trying his phone, no, it's come completely off. Um and my Irish friend Deirdre said listen um, what will you do think straight here where will you go and I said the north uh, the north of Cyprus is Turkey mm-hmm. it's it's Turkish Cypriot mm-hmm. um, and it will be a different country and you basically it's it's controlled border Yeah, uh, Cyprus and Turkish I said he, he's gone there so so said let's go we'll follow and as we went into the car, I tried the phone again and it rang and to my horror, it was an international tone and he answered. Oh God. So I said, it calmly, I said, Mustafa, where are you? And he said, I'm in Turkey, just going into Syria now. And I said, oh my God. I said, what, what, what's, what's going on? He said, I, you're never seeing May again. May is going to live in Syria um, and that's it. And I said, oh my God, can I speak to May? And he put May in the phone and she sounded absolutely distraught. She sounded so different. I didn't recognize her voice and calmly I said, "May, um where are you sweetie?" and she said, "I don't know, ma'am. I were in a car." And I said, "Just tell mammy something very important. Have you been on an airplane?" And she said, "Yes, mammy." Now, we had um, this little plan between the two of us that I said, if she ever was taken by her father and she felt uncomfortable, um, especially in an airport or, you know, anywhere, a bus yeah. station, to go to somebody in uniform. And she had learnt my telephone number off by heart. Right. And I said, sweetheart, did you not go to a man uh, or a person in uniform? And she said, ma'am, uh, daddy bet me. Yeah. I got upset and daddy bet me and I my heart broke. Um, and I said, sweetheart, I said, don't you worry. I said, Mammy's going to come to you. Mammy, I'll will be there as soon as I can. And she said, "Okay, Mammy. Um, and he put the phone down at that stage. So I was distraught. I am um, everything just blew up at that at that stage. All my family in Ireland became aware of it. Um, I need to think straight. I need I know passports. Because I'd cancelled them. Yeah. Um, I stole, i of them as stolen. No Irish passports. Um, and I needed to of my feet. In order to get a passport for May, uh, Irish law stipulated that because his name was on the passport, on the birth cert, I needed his name on the new um, application form. Yeah. It, it, despite the fact that he'd taken her. So um, we just kept hitting all these brick walls, Rebecca. And in the meantime, in your brain is terror because the war started in Syria. And um, the civil war, it was just terror. And um, we had been watching the news, uh, the Arabic stations and the, the war very series, particularly in the north where his family or we'd been before where his family resided. It was just it was chaos. So I was absolutely that's my paramount. My fear was that she was in this war-torn country. So um, and I remember we had to talk, go and do an interview in CID about I've May, and I remember sitting in the office, and before my sister joined me, she just basically come in. I looked behind uh, the inspector's desk, and all behind him on the wall was missing person posters of children mm-hmm. that had been missing, and the different years on them: 2001, 2002. And I said, "These kids have been missing for years." And May's going to go up there now, and my heart just broke. And at that time. At that moment, Mandy came in and my cousin had come with her and we all just hugged and we screamed, cried and it was just so emotional.
2: That moment is just making me like stop breathing like and my skin is literally crawling. So for you as a whore mother. Yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely, I, I just
4: said May's face going to go up there now on a missing person poster. And, you know, um, it's just, and obviously these kids who were up there, their case hadn't been finalized because they yeah. wouldn't be there, yeah. you know, even though three or four years old, the, some of the cases were. And the so, Irish consulate didn't ha- did. No, they weren't interested because the law. So uh, Yvonne, Yvonne, this. Angel, Yvonne Kinslet, basically, she um, at the time was a reporter and a TV producer. And uh, it just turned out that the guard had been notified of May's abduction. And this particular band guard happened to know Yvonne Kinsler. They were a neighbor and friend. Yeah. So she approached her and Yvonne took the story and I woke up the next morning and it was on the front pages of all the Irish media, the mirror, the sun, uh, everything. Uh, Irish child abducted to warthorn Syria it was everywhere and two minutes later I got a call from Phoenix Park to say listen Louise we, we know about the situation and everything's in hand and we've issued seven sets of the passports a uh, passport for you and a passport for me emergency sets and we they sent them to all the countries bordering Cyprus and Syria so they sent one to Cyprus one to Syria one to Jordan Egypt um, uh, Iraq all the, the, the entrance and exits where May possibly could take her totally. from.
2: And obviously, that was a relief to you, but that's like me, that's just pure disgust that I had yeah. to go to the media before yes. you'd get any help.
4: Yeah, yeah. And Yvonne rang me and I thanked her and she said, listen, you know, anything I can do. And she kept running with the story and kept people here informed. So I remember clearly sitting and we're all been crying, sitting, having a coffee. In my living room, uh, they found my car, the BMW, up at Erkan Airport in the north, which is Turkey. And it was brought back down to one of his friends, brought it down and came to the door like everything was normal. Hi, Louise. How are things? You know, how are you doing? And um, his friends were driving past the house. If we left to go to a shop or to go to the police station, they were following me, uh, intimidating me calling me names. It was just the most terrible. And my friends were terrified. Yeah. Um, and we're sitting and I had this moment of clarity. And I said, I have to get May. This is my, the onus is on me. She's my my child. She relies on me. And it dawned on me that no solicitor or law or court is going to get May back from Syria that has their own laws yeah. and, and their own, you know, rules. So I said to Mandy, we're going to get her. Now, we've been talking to these Turkish men that we had known from And they had said that they would be able to, they knew of the area that he, he's gone to. He had mm-hmm. gone to his old village and that they could go over the border and snatch her yes.
2: for a fee. Can we just, just for people to understand, um, so Cyprus and then, Cyprus is one country and half of it was taken over by Turkey. So it's yeah, there was a war to, in, the, in the 70s. Yeah. So it's separate. So the north, it's very
4: much like Ireland. So the north yeah. of Cyprus is yeah. Turkish right. and then the mainland will be adjacent to this in Syria. And then you've got to, so you have to fly then to get to Turkey. So the main airport in northern Cyprus is Aircan. Right. And you'd fly from there then. So what we did, so I said to Mandy, we have to, I have to go and get her. Yeah. And if nothing else, we'll meet these Turkish people smugglers. And at least then we're there when they snatch May, when they bring her back. Yeah. And we'll have something familiar, her toy, because she had this toy called Justin. It was a baby doll and she loved him. and so when, when I realized Justin was left there even, I, I was heartbroken, you know. Mm. So we devised a plan. So we got money out of the bank, paid this guy's drive us up to Air Aircan, went to his desk, Turkish Airlines. We need a flight. To, we need to get to, we had looked and we, we knew we needed to get to the border. We weren't sure what town. So we said, listen, guess the Turkey, but the middle, yeah, <laughs> basically yeah. the, middle. Like, yeah, what? the yeah. middle. So we flew to Istanbul. And then we went to a place called um, Adana, which is a Kurdish part of Turkey. It's more to the east,
2: and Turkey borders with Syria.
4: Yes, yeah, yes. So basically, went to Adana. we arrived. We had two bags to small, little, very backwards airport. Uh, everyone was wearing now for for Mandy in particular, and probably myself. But Mandy in particular had never been to to a Muslim country, Islamic country. It was very strict Kurdish area, all with the burqas and the hijabs. Small airport, very unhygienic, very different. Um, we went out, got a taxi, bring us to a hotel. So you arrive at this hotel, yes. And we were starving, we've been traveling all day, upset, emotionally knackered. And um, basically, we put our jackets on, and the guy who brought us up to our room. We said, Listen, we're going to go out anywhere you'd recommend we eat. And he laughed and said, Are you kidding me? You know, I mean, you're two blonde ladies. This city is so dangerous. You won't last five minutes. You'd be raped and murdered. No, so it's Kurdish leave. turkey. Yes, mm-hmm. Adana. So he, he was such a lovely man, uh, brought us up homemade chips on a mm-hmm. plate and two cokes. I remember into the room. Uh, the next morning, we woke up sort inspired and, and ready to go and, and to get into action. And we went down into the lobby and started asking these random men, listen, anyone here can drive us down to, we need to get to the border. And we, we knew then at this stage that it was half day. Um, Hat Day used to be um Syrian town okay. and had been taken over by Turkey in the 80s. Right. Um, but it was like a refugee camp now. So if you've seen all the pictures in Sky News articles, it was where all the white tents, yeah. rows and rows and rows of white tents, that's where they were. So we're saying to these men, listen, come, you, in broken, didn't speak English. Yeah. Can we, we need to go to Hat Day, Hat Day and like, oh, you mad war there. No, we eventually got these two men and they said for money to drive us. And they drove us down to Day. How far was that? Oh, it must have been, I think about four hours took. Yeah. It took even longer, four or five hours. And how are you feeling in the car at that oh, time? You? you just don't, you're, you're so, uh, your, your adrenaline is so charged. You're so, uh, you know what I mean, on edge. And you're you're looking out for everything. You're waiting for these men to make a move. Are they going to rob you? Are they going to rape you? Are they going to attack you? Are they genuine? You know, you just don't know. You're second guessing everything. And you're, you're alert and you're waiting for something to happen.
2: And Mandy's Mandy been terrified. Yeah, she must have been sick. absolutely
4: terrified, you know. So we got to Hatay. It was um very, very decrepit, very uh, old village. The, the roofs were all corrugated roofs. And we got there, went to a hotel, checked into a hotel and filed the plan. So I knew I needed to get on to, to, I knew I needed to get through to him. So I rang him a few times. He wouldn't answer. And we had to find the plan where I said, well, okay, what is big weak biggest weakness? Mm-hmm. And it was, well, he two basically one was his ego mm-hmm. and two was greedy. He was very, very greedy. So he asked the phone. I said to him, listen, I know now I've accepted that May is in Syria, but please, can I come to you with money? She needs an upbringing. She needs money to be supported. She needs money. You know, mm-hmm. how are you going to live? I know you've none." I think about it. So I knew I had it. So I said to him, listen, I've sold the car. I'll, I'll sell the house. You have my savings, whatever. No problem. You have everything. And he rang back and said, OK, I've thought about that. Yeah, that'll be good. You know, um, and you can. He said, no, I'm not coming to you. Yeah, you have to come to me. So we basically the next morning we had got a taxi man who had said, I'll drop you up to the border. Yeah, uh, the Turkish-Syrian border was right just at the side of Hatay. And on the way up, so before we, I'd been the car, um, Mandy and I, I said our goodbyes. She couldn't go on and I couldn't go back. And she had things to do. She had Josh. She was Josh's primary care. Um, and it was a very emotional goodbye. And I, I remember thinking, I am never going to see my sister again. And she's told me afterwards that she felt the same, that when she watched me walking towards that taxi and getting in, she was seeing the, the back of her sister forever. She'd never see me again. And she, she was convinced of that. It was very, very, it was terrifying. One, to leave someone so familiar in such a dangerous place. Yeah. And two, not know where you're going. You know, I mean, I was on my own. I realized I was really on my own at that
2: stage. Because she, you're about to take on this unbelievable journey. You know what I mean? You're, you're going to have to go in and fight for your life. But yeah, she was, had to do her journey of, and being so alone watching you and the fear of you doing that and then yes. having to get home. Yes. And left in this place that we were terrified to be in anyway,
4: Yeah,
2: you know, and she knew I was
4: going somewhere even more dangerous. So we've often talked about it, you know, it was definitely sort of ironically at the crossroads, you know? Yeah. So in this taxi on the way up to the border, uh, I was handed a phone and the, the man said to me, listen, the taxi driver is very scared the war has escalated in that part of Syria and he's not going to go right up to the gate of the border. He'll drop you off as near so as I'm possible. English-speaking saying yes. Yeah. And I said, okay, that's no problem. So he stopped in this sort of, I could see a, a, a gate, I could see sort of um, a large cement wall mm-hmm. and a gate. Now we're maybe about six, 700 meters away or further. Yeah. And I got out, paid him his money, and I looked around, and it was just barren. And I could see a line, rows and rows and rows of tents over to my right, um, and a chain link fence, and then this big cement wall. And I said, Okay, that's where I have to go. Well, I wasn't even sure I had to go there, but yeah. I just said that. Like, go and I start walking and these men had been begging and they came over and they were asking me for money in Arabic and I, I was like, Oh no, I have nothing. I can't. No, I can't. And start pulling up my clothes and I got more and more scared. and I said, like, I'm not going to make this. It's, it's finished before I even get anywhere. And I was so desperate. And I remember I looked up and I seen this Turkish soldier. He had a hat on and he looked over around this big gate. And the, that, he pressed the button and the gate started opening and I started walking and then running up to this gate and he grabbed me and pulled me in and the gate closed and I was relieved. And I remember so I saw it and I said, okay, I said, thank you. I said, and I just handed him my passport and he was just mystified and this Irish girl, he looked and he's Irish and his Irish passport. And um I, it was an American passport, I remember as well. Yeah. And he was like, um uh okay. And he said, I said, I'm going to Syria. And he said, Now he started laughing. And he said, No, 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 no. He said, There's war, big war in Syria. It's too dangerous. No, I can't let you. And I got really upset. And I said, No, I have to go to Syria. My baby is there and I have to get her. I have to go. And he seen I was upset and he said, Wait a minute. And he went and he spoke to these other men who were kept looking at me out of this big okay. building. And there must be a Muslim general there. He just different hat with red on it. Yeah. And he eventually came over and he said, there you go. And there was a stamp on the passport. And I said, thank you so much. And I went to give him money. No, no, I don't want anything. He said, no, no, don't insult me. And I went to walk. And he said, where are you going now? And I said, I'm going to Syria. And he said, this is, he said, I say he was just, you know, flabbergasted. Yeah. And he said, And I do no, a hijab on you or anything no, like that? No, so no just, I had a scarf ready to put yeah. over my head, but I had it around my neck. And he said, um, no, he said, this is no man's land. He said, um, "You're not going to. You're not going to make us two minutes." He said, "You'll be killed." He said, "People who have come from Syria who can't get to Turkey are, are stuck here, and they're mostly criminals, and they're avoiding the army or avoiding the rebels, one or the yeah. other." So he said, s- "Sit there. S- hold on a second. And He called this man over, and he said, "This woman is my friend," and he said, "You have to drive her to the." Order to Syria. And he said, if you take anything off her, if you touch her, she has my number and you never walk here again. And the man said, okay.
2: I hope you enjoyed part one of Louise's story. Editing it, I really felt that there needed to be two parts in order to be true to her story and give it the time it deserves. Tune in next Monday to hear about her harrowing escape from war torn Syria with her daughter, May.
0: Planning for your next trip?